What I wanted to do today was talk about the work that I've been developing on the interrelations between migration, time, disability and illness particularly, and drawing upon the work I've been doing for about 20 years. I'm a sociologist, so drawing on the work in ethnography and with narrative interviews with dying people in English hospices, hospitals and homes. Um, And some of the themes you'd have already heard about or be familiar with from this sort of excellent scoping review that was done here um, with uh, Ali Rogers, Melanie Griffiths and Bridget Anderson. So they really looked at some of the discussions in migration around temporality. So how temporality, what I mean by that is the lived experience of time. And they identified key themes from that literature Um, And the review highlighted some of our taken-for-granted, particularly Western understandings of time as linear. So, for instance, they highlighted different tempos of waiting, how for detainees and refused asylum seekers, uncertainty can pull out and stretch into an ever-unbounded and um, uh, unending present, while also carrying this threat of precarity in the sense of fast uh, pace tornadoes of a time arriving in clusters and swarms around administrative decision making. So these are very much liminal times and also spaces. Everything is up in the air. Decisions could go one way or another. And as those such as so the feminist theorist Isabel Lobel and Judith Butler have pointed out, precarisation is a very key tool in governance at the moment. I'm very interested in the pace of time, so there's very different cuts you can take through uh, some of the literature on temporality and the temporal turn, as there now is in social sciences. (coughs) So I've been interested really in the pace of time in relation to slowness. Lots of you will be familiar with Lauren Ballant, the feminist theorist Lauren Ballant's work on slow death, where she's talking about obesity in the context of uh, American epidemiology and concerns about working class people. Uh, There's also Rob Nixon's work, who I find really interesting. Um, He talks about slow violence in the context of environmental disasters. Um, Why I've got that gif up there is because often when I think of slow pain at the end of life, it's often like a time-lapse photography, really, where you can see something of a whole life sort of unfurl and then die at those last moments. And for Nixon, his definition of slow violence is that it occurs gradually and out of sight, a violence of delayed destruction that is dispersed across time and space, a nutritional violence that is typically not viewed as violence at all. So it's this very slow-moving violence. There's almost a taken-for-grantedness of it. My research takes up some of these themes, but really develops them in relation to what I think is a very much neglected area of migration research, which is how the biochemical complexities and, in fact, the electrical mysteries of the body can alter and rearrange time and space so that subjective experience can migrate while all time a body stays put and in the same place. So I'm talking about stealthy migrations underneath the skin. And I've been working, really, um, with art and drama I find writing, particularly maybe sociological writing, very (laughs) constraining in terms of trying to evoke and represent non-linear time. 
So that's why my work um, with artists has come up, and also uh, particularly in terms of dramatising some uh, some of my empirical research and what I'm at the moment calling empirical performance. So I'm taking parts of interviews that I've done with dying migrants and sort of fictionalising them. Um, so I'm, I've been working with going back to some of the feminist work on this, and there's a really amazing book by. Elizabeth Wilson called Neural Geographies that some of you might be um, know of or might be interested in and I'm trying to take that work through in relation to what that means in terms of migration so as Elizabeth Wilson has mounted a very strong critique of feminist approaches really she says that they don't allow biology its surprises. You know, biology is sort of naturalised as the other. It's something that we all always try and critique in terms of essentialism. And so there's this divide between sex and gender, where gender does all the exciting things that are open to culture and sex is seen as sort of more fixed. And this was one of her um, ways of talking about it. She says, take, for example, the extensive feminist writing on the body and eating disorders... These analyses consider the cellular processes of digestion, the biochemistry of muscle action, and the secretion of digestive glands to be the domain of factual and empirical verification. There is surprisingly little feminist criticism on the nature of the stomach, the bowels, or the internal cavity of the mouth. Only a certain understanding of the body has currency for these feminist analyses. And I would argue there's parallels there in terms of migration, in terms of how migrant migration scholars actually approach the body. Do we ever discuss what biochemical changes might happen as a result of migration or indeed transgenerational transmission um, of not only... We talk about it in relation to culture, I think, but not really in relation to biochemical processes. So the work that I'm going to talk about by context comes out of a British Academy Fellowship project that I did between 2013 and 14. It does seem like 100 years ago. <laughs> but um, it was on social pain, uh, as it's called in the social science, um, social pain in palliative care neurosciences and what's known in social sciences as social suffering. So you might have come across this in Pierre Bourdieu's work. Arthur Kleinman, Vina Das and Margaret Lockwood did a really brilliant um, edited collection on this. So I've been trying in the British Counting Project to enter into conversations between these three very different bodies of literature. So um, in palliative care, we have the notion of social pain. So Cicely Saunders was working with a model of total pain where there's no divides really between mind, body and spirit. And she defined social pain in relation to isolation, uh, economic, so people who were dying were worried about what would happen to their families because they didn't have any money. And so she was looking at the economic and social consequences of pain. Um, the neuroscience research, which I'm just going to talk about, is really interesting. And it's neuroscientists who are really running away and playing with social uh, pain at the moment. And this is seen as uh, the damage that's caused or the consequences of broken social re relationships or rejection. In the social sciences, um, so this is from the Kleinman, Das and Locke book, social suffering is the whole assemblage of human problems that result from what political, economic and institutional power does to people. So this is the 
thinking that social injustice and inequality hurts. Um, so in terms of neuroscience, what's really interesting is they do all these really whizzy experiments in neuroscience, but they're suggesting that there's some structural correspondence between physical pain and what they call social pain. And they say that they share some of the same somatosensory substrates. Um, so they do these things. This is uh, from Naomi Eisenberger, who's been one of the leading researchers here. And they put people into MRI scans and they'll put their thumb in a vice and see which part of their brain lights up. And then they do things like experiments. One experiment was to show people images of their past lovers, for example, um, and see what happened. And then this is a, another experiment that they did um, with a computer-simulated game of catch. So the person would be in the MRI scanner and they'd be playing catch with two other people, they thought. So they're having a lovely game of catch. And then what would happen was they'd sort of switch the experiment and uh, the person in the scanner would be gradually excluded. So it was just two people playing, say, that game. And then guess what they found when that happened? So the same part of the brain for pain lit up as when someone was excluded from this game of catch. So I think the findings of that corresponding sort of neurocircuitry between physical pain and social pain is really interesting, but it also we also need to critique it in that way. First of all, that the experiment is set up in a way that starts off with these divisions between physical and social pain. What I'm really interested in, and this is the work I'm just trying to develop, is how we might engage with that, the scientific. So going back to Elizabeth Wilson's point, how do we problematise both the way of conceptualising social pain, but also recognising that those experiments don't just reflect a reality, they produce it. So they actually intervene. This is sort of thinking about methods as non-innocent, how methods produce also our object of study. And so the findings, they have practical implications. So if we took the findings at a surface level to say social pain and physical pain, are the, you know, they, they're... they're the same thing or they're very correspondent. This raises ethical questions, for example, like do we medicate people for social pain at the end of life? We do it actually throughout life. But so when people can sometimes have acute distress at the end of life, so do we give them morphine for that? Or when people present just with physical pain, do we also uh, give them psychotherapy? So if we maintain even those divisions, there's some really interesting uh, ethical questions, I think. What else do we have to think about? Well, I think there's a real difference between probably the pain that's produced when you put someone into an MRI scanner in the protective environment of a laboratory and the difference with what it's like to live with social pain over a life course. So there are those differences that we need to, to look at. And I think the real challenge for researchers and, and carers is how might we trace and respond to these biopsychosocial experiences. And they can be lacking in a referent, so they don't have a name. As a culture, do we have a name for what it feels like to live with the pain of racism, for example, or homophobia? You know, and I often find at the end of life that people can talk in different ways, but it's very difficult because there isn't that ready language there. So Miranda Fricker, the philosopher, calls this uh, a hermeneutic injustice, when we're lacking the hermeneutic 
resources to actually acknowledge some marginalised experiences. The, the other point is is that social pain, I think, has, is often I imagine it as that a programme I used to love when I was growing up, which was Tomorrow's People, where you used to have these characters that used to jaunt from one space to another. And um, that's often known in quantum physics as tunnelling. So something can be in different places at the same time. And I think social pain might also have these qualities, that it can tunnel from one time to another. We also need to think in terms of migration, how these embodied experiences might be culturally variable. Now, this is really, really important. So Talal Assad, for example, has been doing some really interesting work on this, where he says we need to augment Western understandings of embodiment with what he calls ensoulment. So this connection between spirit, mind, body and culture. Um, and so this recognising, which Elizabeth, Wilson, Elizabeth Wilson's work and also Vicky Kirby does really well, is looking at the quite amazing interrelations between culture and the body. Just by way of context in terms of migration, I think it's also important to point out that not all migrants are young men. Um, and this has really wider policy, practical um, as well as research implications. So there's been recently this summer, there's been set up the Palliative Care in Complex Humanitarian Emergencies Network, and it's trying to address the shortcomings in the integration of palliative care into medium-term disasters, so natural disasters and longer-term disasters. They're looking at what's unfolding in refugee camps now. You also know, in terms of what the Home Office has been doing, that the palliative care needs of those in detention and people who go on hunger strike with life-limiting conditions um, and, and those with life-limiting conditions such as dementia. So these are some recent cases which I'm sure you'll be aware of. Um, and the Home Office, uh, there was an inspector inspection done by the Prison Inspectorate of um, Harmonsworth uh, removal Centre in 2000, August 2013 and uh, it was quite damning that report but the inspector Nick Hardwick identified particularly the physical and mental conditions and vulnerability of particularly older men um, if you remember the Warzak case he was held in handcuffs actually until he died of some, a person who had dementia so I think in terms of thinking about migration and these issues, we're very much focused on the now in migration. For, you know, there's the drama of the border crossing. And I think actually understanding how the experience of migration might unfold over a life in terms of a longer temporality is a, is a really major concern. Sort of keeping um, this in mind, really, I sort of, in terms of just to reiterate what the challenges of our, this are in research... <coughs> There's also an implicit temporality to names. So pain is what the site, you know, in palliative care and neuroscience is concerned with, which is sort of more focused on acuteness. And suffering in social sciences is something slow and foot-dragging. Um, so we don't have a name for it. It's not always accessible in the present, even though it might fracture the now. Um, it's mobile. And the experience of what suffering is can also change over a time. And the other point which the neuroscientists, again, are doing interesting research on is to thinking about how social suffering and trauma in particular might be transferred from one generation to another. So there's a very interesting work 
being done, I'll talk about later, Rachel Yehuda, who's been following up survivors um, of, Holo- of the Holocaust and their families. What I want to do, what I wanted to do, was to show you um, a piece, two short pieces that I've been sort of developing, and I did them for the first type performance uh, a year ago uh, with the actor Ludwig Bonig and another actor called... Um, Sasha Frost and these were where I took parts of interviews composite parts of interviews and brought them together in a short four minute performance and it's really sad because you really need to see the performances Um, but I can talk you through that Uh, so I was going to show um, Sasha's performance and um, I don't know if you can even hear in that. Shall I turn the sound off, maybe? or Turn it off, or you can hear.
I'm really, really sorry about the sound. I hope you caught some of that, but if I just explain, so it was taken from a composite of interviews. So there's something about technology there. So it's a scene about somebody and the care practitioners in who's having an MRI scan. And the MRI scanner, being in the MRI scanner, came up quite a few times in my interviews with dying people. It seemed for some people to have really taken them, as one woman said, it felt like a sepulchre, sort of taking her to the moment of her death. So I think it's interesting about how the physical environment and technologies can also play with time and space. But a significant part of that interview comes from an interview with a Gujarati carer who was looking after her mother, so I've called her Harshini, and her mother had dementia, and her mother would wander out of their home in Leicestershire, thinking she was wandering the fields in the village that she'd left decades ago. Her fingers, even though she, she was a devout Hindu, she'd forgotten some of her cultural prescriptions. So her daughter was really upset that she was in a care home. She said she was so devout she wouldn't even allow bread in to be coming from outside. And in the care home she would just eat whatever was in front of her. So she'd forgotten that part of her identity. And yet her fingers still worked a ghostly mala, as if she was praying. And so that was a part you, you would have heard in that. So I was really interested in what struck me as the interrelations between the effective and material traces of other places and times, but also how they cross over into culturally honed sensorium, fingers still working with a rhythm. So this is what I was talking about, about subjective migrations, how they can desiccate experience. What's also interesting is that I think in the literature on cultural hybridity, we talk about migrants and assimilating, and we talk about the the mixing and melding between different cultures. (coughs) And the arrow of time always flies forward. But what happens with biochemical um, changes in the body is that we can see an unravelling, an unzipping of what has been mixed up and melded. And this can be selective. So her fingers might still remember the rhythms of a different time and place, but she might have forgotten her religion. There's a one-to-one correspondence of walking out of a house in Leicestershire thinking that you're in a field in in the Gujarat, so that time and place and distances then collapse. So I think we see in that story a certain reversibility of time and and an unfolding of of blended. Um, And I think what's really important of that is thinking about also agency. So we think of agency in this in the Western way of sort of acting and resistance. And I think what's um, Carol Greenhouse, who's a philosopher on time and has a really good book, talks about agency in terms of revealing people's ideas about how the world works. So I want to go for a much more humble notion of agency and think about maybe in terms of disease and illness, we can actually find out a lot about how people subjectively experience time and space. So um, why I'm, what I'm really interested in, what I want to sort of uh, research next, is end-of-life hallucinations. So there's lots of very scattered documentation. So there's a condition called terminal restlessness, 
at the end of life, which can be caused by drugs or pathology, so organ system failure, for example, which changes biochemistry. And what's been really interesting is the things that people hallucinate about aren't random. Um, And the last words that you heard in that piece were actually the words, the last words that my mother spoke to me, the words that came out of a morphine haze, which were get the tickets and the passports. So she said, the man is coming, get the tickets and the passports. And so partly what I was also experimenting with that piece is what happens when a researcher inserts a biographical experience into research. So we're always mixing up our experiences with theirs. And so I wanted to use it as a point of provocation. So what happens actually at that point? So how can we, ref- we ref- you know, really explore reflexivity, which seems to be done in very... Um, unimaginative ways of just saying this is where I'm from, this is, you know, this is how I might have affected the research but I really wanted to explore some of that more um, in terms of end of life hallucinations part of my British Academy Award I was also get, went back to Cicely Saunders archive, Cicely Saunders set up the modern hospice movement she was amazing, she was did PPE just across the road um, and during the war she couldn't bear being in this privileged area. She moved down to London and became a nurse to look after dying people. She had back problems, she had to leave nursing. She then re-qualified as a social worker to work among dying people and this was a time in the 1950s when pain relief was viewed very cynically and people worried about it. You had to scream, in a way, for morphine because the doctors were worried that you would become addicted. So people were dying in a lot of pain, and Cicely wanted to do something about it. And somebody told her, if you're really serious, people will only listen to you if you're a doctor. So in her 30s, she retrained as a doctor and qualified at the age of 40. So if you imagine this happening sort of in the late 1950s, it's a huge thing now. Um, But you can see philosophy, you can see philosophy in her work but I was going back through her notes to see how she developed her ideas of social pain. And I found migrants had really endowed her thinking, but of course they're always written out of official histories. But this was something in her notes, just scribbled down. Um, and she gave a lecture about problem patients, and this patient featured in it. So a patient with an extermination camp background who later de- developed severe depression with hallucinations helped by ECT Um, and there's other uh, research that's been done recently doctors and nurses have been writing about it so Swedish nurses published a paper about talking about refugees and asylum seekers and people who um, survived concentration camps how very small procedures of care putting on an oxygen mask or giving injections became quite traumatic so I think these sort of evidence is scattered everywhere and so partly I'd really like to um, bring some of that together really um, I'm just very wary of time so, yeah. does that mean sorry does that mean the, the patient was helped by ECT or the hallucinations were yeah. By yeah, no, the patient was had the right. hallucinations okay. and depression got better with ECT. Okay. So, um, but I mean, this was something that was just, she was just highlighting it, and I was really wishing she'd gone and talked about it more. And now her other notes are like, I came across just, you know, seeing people in clinics, you know, a charming West Indian, very much alone, wanting to go home, you know, and it's, it was real, I was just very sad going through all of those and wondering what might have happened to those people.
Um, and um, I think I'll actually stop quite soon because I want to talk, <laughs> let you talk. Um, but just in case some of you are interested, uh, there's a really uh, wonderful literature you might have heard on the sort of haunting, so sociological haunting and ghosts. So Avery Gordon's beautiful book, Ghostly Matters. Um, and this book, which you'll need a box of tissues when you're reading it, is just so beautiful, Grace Cho, Haunting the Korean Diaspora where she's talking about... So her mother used to hear voices. Her mother was part of the... part of some of the 100,000 women who became formed of uh, sexual labour for the military. Um, but she has been talking about the haunting of that across generations. Um, and she says there's a distributed psyche. So the role of research, she turns very much to the arts that we have to piece together these bits and pieces of stories in order to understand um, the ghosts of, uh, of trauma. So she says the bodies of diaspora, and particularly the Korean diaspora, are constituted by unremembered trauma and loss. When an unspeakable or uncertain history, both personal and collective, takes the form of a ghost, it search, searches for bodies through which to speak. In this way, the ghost is distributed across the time-space of diaspora. I want to rethink the ghost not as a psychic representation of the dead or repressed, but as a body assembled to transmit traumatic memory. So a ghost is not something paranormal, and for Avery Gordon it's not necessarily traumatic, but it's what happens to those experiences that are deported out of social life, that we don't have a language for, that we don't recognise, and what she says is they never actually go away. Um, so what's really interesting when I did my, just to, I'll just finish here, when I did my uh, British Academy research, so I went and interviewed some neuroscientists. And I was interviewing some neuroscientists at University College London and nearly fen fell off my chair when they talked about neurological haunting. You know, so they, um, there's some very uh, interesting experiments um, so Rachel Yehuda is the person I was talking about before, but she's just been doing experiments that have just come out at the beginning of this year, really interesting on the intergenerational transmission of traumatic post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and this Diaz and Wrestler is a really interesting experiment they did with mice. They exposed mice to a similar smell to cherry blossom and made them aversive to it and frightened. Um, mm -hmm. And the grandchildren of mice, so two generations on, who'd never been in the experiment, showed the same behaviours. So when they smelt cherry blossom, they became stressed and anxious and frightened. Um, so, and this is obviously mice, but I think it's really interesting to think about how the neuroscience is developing. We need to have a critical engagement with it, really. Um, so I'm going to stop.